So, as always, I feel like I look around and there's new faces or people that maybe I just haven't seen in a while. And uh, actually, I was, I was encouraged. I was talking with Sam this week, and he said he did this on Wednesday, and I thought, I'm going to try it uh, and see what happens. Um, so who here has been a part of this series we're in right now through First Peter from the beginning? Any hands? Okay. All right. Some of you. Some of you. A lot of you not. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I believe that uh, I, it's just it's just good to know. It's good to kind of get a feel. Uh, I mean, we have been in this series for a long time. We're in uh, part nine today, and we're in chapter two. <laughs> so uh, we are going slowly, uh, but it is a really a text that has a lot to give, a lot to offer. It's got a lot of weight, and um, although I do th- I do think it's good. I always encourage everybody, especially when we're doing a short book like it's only five chapters altogether. Uh, to take time and read it, to take time and read through the text, especially if you can't come every week. Uh, so you just kind of can have a, a, a glimpse of the book as a whole of what Peter is really trying to say in it because it really builds on itself, it connects. Uh, but I do think that in itself, every, every bit that we've been looking at does have a lot of power and things to say to, it, to us in itself. Our series has been called Standing Out in a Foreign World. Standing out in a foreign world, and we've been kind of looking at that and uh, talking a lot about our status, and uh, uh, I think, okay, I just noticed everyone's eyes just went up, and I was like, all right, what happened? Is there a movie going on? Okay, good, good, yeah, standing out in a foreign world, and it's uh, here today, we're going to really be able to dive in a little bit more into the practical. Um, In fact, he's really kind of starting something here, he's going to continue on, so let's read through the text, or let's start by reading the text, and it's chapter 2, verse 11 through 17, if you have your Bibles and you'd like to read along with me. Uh, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, and pagans just means people who aren't Christian. Anybody who uh, believes anything other than Christianity is, is another way you could look at that. Among the pagans, that... Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, You should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your text today. We thank you, Father, for what your word has to say to us today. We thank you for your presence and your spirit that is alive and active within these words, and that you want to speak to us. You want to encourage us. You want to challenge us and strengthen us and edify us as the body of Christ today. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be in this place, that your presence would be in this place, and that we would hear from you. Give us ears to hear. And Lord, give me, Father, the wisdom to speak only your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Boy, I'm not going to be used to that mic ever. 
It's like no good position. All right. You guys can hear me? Or maybe I'll just go like Spurgeon style. He's, he said that if you can't, uh, if you don't have a good lung capacity to speak to a crowd, and this was before microphones, then you don't deserve to preach. So maybe this is my test. I could see, see if I can do it. All right. So up to now, Peter's directed the majority of his teaching in this letter, or a lot of his teaching. We've, we've seen a lot of different kind of things he's thrown in here and there, but a lot of it has been towards our identity, so who we are, who, we, what, who God calls us, our status. We talked a lot about status last week, but all throughout the text that we've gone through so far, we've seen a lot of our status and our identity, or the status and identity of those who follow after Jesus, those who are Christian. And this section takes kind of a hard and important turn right there at the beginning. We're, we've, we're kind of coming into a turning point for the text, for, for the letter as a whole, uh, from who we are and what we've been given, so in our status and, and uh, our identity in Christ, uh, into this kind of direct application about what he's taught so far. And that transition is made really clear, again, right at the beginning with this dear friends. And a lot of translations use the word beloved, I like better dear beloved or dearly beloved uh it's and the the point is that it's uh one it's a, a literary tool that demonstrates a transition so it's like in the middle of the letter he's like saying okay friends listen brother sister whatever you want to use if it was a personal letter it would be like putting someone's name in the middle of the letter it's kind of really trying to grab their attention but so really pointing to the changing of gears, how he's about to change gears, but it's also something very personal. It's intimate, friend, beloved. It has this intimate and empathetic feel to it. And I think there's a point to that. There's a significance. And I only point this out that we would really grab a hold of the attention that he's trying to get us to grab. I think he's saying to us, you know, hey, everything that I've looked at so far was, was kind of leading to this practical application we're going to get into today. So now we're getting into the everyday. So really hear what I have to say. This is where the rubber meets the road, as they say in the States. I don't think they say that anywhere else, but anyway. Or do they? Do they say it in Australia? Yeah, where the rubber meets the road? All right. I never know. I never know. So here's where it really gets real. And this personal applicable section really is verse 11 and 12. If we look at verse 11 and 12, we see this kind of starting point of something that's going to continue on into all these different areas of life, uh, all the way into chapter 3, and in a lot of ways throughout the rest of the book, but he really, he has this kind of one section that starts here with these two verses. Now, being that all of this is rooted in kind of where we left off last week, and only about half of the hands went up for what uh, the people who've been really a part of this from the beginning... I think it's good to kind of restate our status. What does that mean? What is our status? And there's all kinds of verses we could have grabbed from everything we've gone through so far, but I think chapter 2, verse 9, really says it well, that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's precious possession. That really breaks it down. This is our status, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. A holy nation. Now, why is our status important? Because we're also exiles. And he calls us exiles right at the beginning of this section. He keeps re-emphasizing this phrase, exiles, foreigners. 
Now, an exile is somebody who's an outcast, somebody who doesn't really fit into the society that they're a part of, somebody who's kind of maybe lives on the fringes of it. They've been exiled. And a lot of the people that he would, had, is writing to would have really experienced this in a very real and in a, in a persecution-type way uh, as this was kind of coming into a time when the church began to be more and more uh, persecuted. But exiles is any, anyone who fits into this category, and I believe all of us as believers is the point, that in our status we are also exiles here. We're foreigners, meaning that we belong to another land, as some have put it, another kingdom. And the point is, is that as foreigners, we have different customs. I look around this room and there's so many different cultures represented in this room, diff- people from different countries. And it's really, if you start having a conversation about, well, what do they do about this and, or that, or what, what's common to, to eat or whatever it might be, it's really easy to see how different cultures can be even here on the earth. But we belong to a culture, we belong to a kingdom, not of this world. And so we should have different values and different customs than the world we are in now. We're foreigners here. This is a part of our status. And it's to do with where we come from. The Bible talks about that we've been brought out of the world. We've been brought out of the world, brought out of death into life. And at the same time, we're brought out of the world. We're also kind of put back into it. But now belonging to a new kingdom, having a new status as children of God, a holy nation, his people. And in this status, we're also given freedom because we're royalty now. We belong to the king. He also calls us sons, that we can be co-heirs. We, we share in the inheritance that Christ shares in. So we have freedom that comes with our status. But this is not a freedom that's defined by the world that we exist in now. Our freedom is defined by the kingdom to come, by Christ as king. Not by the world around us. And I think we have to keep this in mind. The world gives declarations of our rights when they talk about freedom. It's the individualism, the liberal lifestyle saying, it's my life and I'll do what I want with it. That's what freedom is. But we belong to a custom that doesn't see freedom like that. The Christian's freedom is found in Christ. And Christ's freedom, Christ's by nature, is sacrificial, and his freedom is a sacrificial freedom. Jesus himself, who we follow, didn't come to this world to be served, to sit on velvet pillows and be fed grapes, as I imagine what being served would look like. He didn't come for that. He came to serve. He came to minister to others. In verse 16 of our text today, it says, live as free people. Why? Because you are. That's your status. You should live as free. You should understand what that freedom is, though. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. So we're in this world, and, and we don't really have to, we don't belong to the customs of this world. We belong into the kingdom of heaven. But don't use that as a way to live evil, is what he's saying. Live as God's slaves. Live as God's slaves. 
So we see again an attitude that comes from freedom but is built into servitude. We are servants of the Lord. And our status as God's people, or in our status, we have this freedom, but what are we free to do? Well, we're free to love others. We're free to serve. We're free to submit because we can abandon ourselves. We can see that, the, that the, what the world calls freedom isn't freedom. It's just a different kind of slavery. Slaves to their own desires, to their own evil desires, sinful desires. But we are free to love freely, to serve others, and to submit. And in this, we are slaves ultimately to God and to God alone. And that's the point. When I serve, when I love others, when I give of myself, I'm doing it unto the Lord because He is my King. And that makes me free here. I belong to Him. And all that we do in this life, out of our freedom, we do in submission to God. The freedom He's given us is a freedom from the blindness that this world puts over the blinders that this world puts over our eyes to not see clearly it's a self-guided individualistic type of freedom and this is what the world claims to offer us and what they claim is what's best for us but in reality god offers us freedom from this blindness and to see the importance of loving one another of serving one another and doing it ultimately unto the Lord. In our status, we're also given a mission to declare God's praises, to glorify Him. And today in the text, we see practical purpose in this calling that we kind of ended with last week. But we see now practical purpose in this calling and how we are to live a life and this is ultimately our goal in, in how, when we talk about our actions, because we're free, we, we live in freedom, but our ultimate goal is that we would reflect glory onto God through how we live our lives today. That we would reflect glory onto Him. That when people look to us, they would, their eyes would be gazed or would be directed upward to the Lord because we belong to that kingdom. Let's read verse 1 again. I urge you, I urge you, so considering your status, I urge you, considering that you are a foreigner, an exile, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So this is also an urgent transition in the text. Not only does he try to bring it to a personal level, really try to grab our attention, but he says it's urgent. It matters. It's not to be taken lightly. And I think his hope is that we too would feel the weight as he feels it. What is the urgency? Well, it's weighted by our very souls being warred against. Our very souls are being warred against. Notice the sequence here. So we see our status. So in your status as exiles, outsiders, people that maybe don't fit into the society, foreigners, people that don't belong here, have different ideals, different customs. In that abstain, avoid, resist, 
be rid of in your heart, subdue sinful desires. Abstain from sinful desires. Of what? Of the world. Of what's around you. Because you're foreigners here. So abstain from the sinful desires that are a part of your flesh, that are a part of the world that you're in. And I think that's the first step in this, when it talks about desires, I like that it uses the word desires. Before any practical action can take place, before we get to what we actually do, before we can live for God, before we can glorify Him before others in what we do and reflect glory to Him, it begins with our desires. The point is, is that you, you were formerly in this world, and we, in this life, will always be connected to it. Paul uses the description of, in Galatians of, of, a, of also just kind of a, a warring within us between what we want to do and what we do to, because the Spirit of God is in us. We belong to God, but we still have this fleshly body. But you were formerly of this world, but now you have been made new into the image of Christ. You are new creatures in Christ Jesus. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. Do you submit to the old desires of your flesh or to the renewed, the renewed by the Spirit of God desires of your heart? Which are you engaging with? Which are you submitting to? And I believe the battle begins in the mind above all else. And in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, uh, Paul gives us an encouragement in, a, in how to actively take action, or to take action against this. He says, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Take it captive. It doesn't say, stop having those thoughts. That would be insane. We know that our, our, things come in our minds and sometimes we think, where did that come from? How am I even capable of thinking something like that? Where is this coming from? Don't ponder on it. Take it captive. Make it obedient to Christ. Don't dwell on it. Don't think on it. Take it captive. Because if we're not abstaining first from the, the desires that start in our minds think we're going to fall into one of two dangerous areas. If we're losing the battle in our minds, we're either going to fail to see it affect our actions. We're going to fail to see a change in the way that we actually live our life. Or, and I would say maybe even worse, is that we would be, as, as Jesus calls the Pharisees, we would be like a, a cup that's polished and clean on the outside but filthy on the inside. And that we would fall into hypocrisy. The battle begins in the mind. Abstain from those evil desires when they first appear as a thought. Whatever it might be. And changed desires happen, or yeah, changed desires happen in conjunction with a changed perspective. So I want to go back to this. How do you view the world? How do you view the world around you? Do you view it as a part of it? As a part of the world? Or do you really look at it as a foreigner? 
Now, a lot of us in this room are foreigners. I am a foreigner here. But uh, Germany is, after eight years here, it kind of all blends together. But um, I think of actually my time in India. I spent a few months in India, and that is a drastic difference. Uh, first of all, when you go, <laughs> looking the way I do going to India as a foreigner, it's very clear that I don't belong there. Nobody was thinking, is he Indian maybe? No one thought that. It was very clear that I, I did not belong there. I was definitely a foreigner. Uh, not like here. I could, I could probably blend in, you know, here in Freiburg, put on some outdoor clothes, maybe some socks and my sandals. And they'd be like, ah, he might be German. I don't know. Yes, Germans. We know you wear socks with sandals. I'm not trying to blend in. So the point is, what, I, what I'm trying to say is that think of, of being a foreigner. When you walk into a place, when I got off the plane for the first time in India, I think you have a different eye. You look at things differently. You look a little more intently. You're watching how people interact. You're watching how the conversations happen. You're watching how do the police interact. How, do the, uh, how is business done? You're really watching how things are done. You want to keep an open eye because you want to be careful not to look foolish, I guess is one part, but also you kind of don't want to end up in a compromising position that you didn't mean to end up in. Maybe another time I'll tell you some stories about how that might have happened a couple times in my experience in India. But my point here is that when we're foreigners and we see that or we know that we're foreigners, we look a little bit different. And what I'm trying to point out is that being exiles, being foreigners, is not only about how we look different to the world. It's not only about standing out. But it should also transform how we perceive the world we're in. Do we perceive it as somebody who belongs to the, to the kingdom of heaven, as somebody who belongs to the Lord, who is a servant of God, who belongs to Christ? Or do we perceive it as just a part of the world we're in? So it's not just about standing out. It's also about how we view it. When we look at how things are done, do we just accept it? This is so easy to do. I think uh, the best example is anything that we do on the internet. It's so easy to just get swiped up into how things, everything that's being thrown at us constantly by the world. Because we can't really, you can't really sit in your, in your room anymore and be safe. You can't really get away from it uh, like maybe you could have at some point. It's literally being pumped into your house, into your mind, through your phone, and do we just look at these things and just think that's just the way it is and that's just the norm? Or do we, as a foreigner, question, wait a minute, this is different from my custom. This is different from what I hold value to. I don't know if I want to hold the same values that the world is holding. Is this really what's best? Is this something that I should be engaging in? Do we take a moment and ask these questions? What am I really doing? What am I really stepping into when I look at this or go here or watch that? Whether it's Netflix, 
Well, everyone's watching it. Everybody's watching this series. I don't want to be out of the loop when everyone at work is talking about it. Or can we really ask, is this good for my soul? Now remember that the world, he, he says very clearly, they're, 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 going, they're going to ridicule you. They're not going to see your point. Certainly not always and almost never from the beginning. But take this perspective of, I don't belong to this world. I'm in this world, but I don't want, to, I don't want it to rub off on me. I want to remember who I am. I want to remember my status as a free child of God. So when we're bombarded with the advertisements, with the way business is conducted, with everything that we interact with here in the world, keep your eye keen. Paul's gonna, or, sorry, Peter's going to talk again about this later and uh, that we need to be watchful and vigilant because we also have an enemy that walks around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he doesn't do that necessarily through a direct attack. It might be just through one decision after the next of just accepting things as okay. Do we question what's important? Has what's important to us changed? Fashion, money, power, possessions. When we see how the world lives and how it's conducted conducted as, as foreigners, we should have this keen eye and ask the question, is that really the best way to do that? Should I follow that? Should I just accept that as a part of who I am? Or is this going to lead to a sinful desire? Is this something that I should abstain from? First of all, for the sake of my very soul, because it is my soul that is being warred against when it comes to the evil desires. But also to the glory of God, that I would glorify God in what I do. And in verse 12 we're given kind of the other side of the urgency. Let's read it. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. As foreigners here, we are called with an importance to give glory to God, to give glory to our King. First, because he's our Lord. We're his children. We represent him here. And that's the key. We represent him here in this land that we're in as foreigners. And it's not only our souls that are at stake, but those who are still of this world, still in this world. And they might look at us in how we live. And I love this. So it says, on the day he visits us. And uh, some translations are, uh, more translations, 
say, on the day of visitation. And it's, in Greek, it's a bit ambiguous what exactly he's talking about. So a lot of times we, we see where it's, uh, these things are referenced, and it's referring to the, the second coming of Christ. Uh, but here it might be talking about that, but I believe it also could be talking about the day that God, or God's truth, or the truth of Christ, is revealed to them. When they begin to understand it. So they might see your life for year after year and ridicule you, think you're an idiot, make fun of you for what you believe. And then one day the truth makes sense. And then they look back at your life and think, whoa, they, I get it now. I get why they lived the way they did. And they give God glory. So they might ridicule you now, but there could come a day when through the life you've lived, giving glory to God, they too will glorify Him. Those who accuse us, who ridicule us, and oppress us now may have a day when they see the truth, when God gives them the revelation of truth and might use your very life to do it. They may reject the truth now, but we should still seek to live such good lives that when that day comes and they do receive that truth, they can truly get it. Have that moment where they can look back and say, I understand now and give God glory through what, how they saw God or what they saw of God in your life. So how can our actions done good done well, really ultimately point to the Lord practically in our day-to-day? Well, I think in, uh, verse, or in 1 Peter 3.15, he really kind of, I think, finishes the thought here that we can connect to this. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So our longing in all of this is that when they do see how we conduct our lives, they may be compelled to ask us why. That they would ask us why, and then in gentleness we can be ready to give the reason for the hope we have, the strength we have, the encouragement we have, the trust we have. This is the ultimate motive and what would point to a life that is truly glorifying of God. So let's be practical about this. This all sounds really nice, but uh, let's break it down. Let's think about, I think, a good place to start is money. The world, or the desires of the flesh, which lead to sinful desires, say, keep as much as you can. Earn as much as you can and spend your money on what makes you happy. Spend it on yourself. Take that vacation, man. You deserve it. Right? Amen. Taking a vacation now. This is speaking to me in the wrong way. That's what the world says. But what if... What if we were to abstain from that desire? 
that is inherent in all of us. Anybody who's worked for a paycheck looks at that paycheck, it's always much less than you expected, and you think, yeah, you want to you save it. You, wanna, you think through what you want to spend it on, what you might want to be saving for. We want to hold on to our finances. It's mine. I earned it. But what if we abstain from that desire? What if we take a different perspective? What if we take the perspective of belonging to Christ, belonging to the Lord, being a foreigner here, not accepting what the world says we should accept when it comes to money? What if we gave more? What if we were really generous? What if we loved having people over and blessing them with a meal? What if we gave more to the church and the organizations in our city that are doing God's work, serving God's purposes? Well, the world will call us ridiculous, stupid, crazy. You're wasting your money. What are you doing giving it away? And there might be a day when they finally say, you know, you give all your money away all the time, and yet you, you don't seem upset, you don't seem worried, you don't seem fearful about it. Either you're insane or some, you're, I'm missing something. Why? Why do you, how can you do that? Why do you give so much away? Why aren't you worried? Why don't you spend it more on yourself? And we can say, well, let me tell you. Let me tell you about the hope I have. Let me tell you why I like to be generous. Because I've received generosity from my Lord. More than I could ever hope to give back to anybody. And because of that, I want to live generously. I'm a foreigner here. We have different customs where I come from. We're generous. Whatever. We can explain it. And I think personal security, money is one part of that, but in all aspects of personal security, I find it very extreme here in Germany. You guys have like insurance for your insurance. It's like, whoa, you have to have insurance for what now? Well, there might, maybe someday you might like trip and then like a ball like flies over and kills somebody and you need insurance for that. It's crazy. I mean, I get it. I've lived here long enough. I get it. But what if, what if we don't have to have a bank account that's full of money? What if we don't have to have like our security built up in our job, built up in what the world would say is secure? What if I can say, hey, I, I don't have all of those things. I don't have a bank account that's full of money. I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust in the Lord. He's taken care of me every step of the way so far, and I believe he's going to continue until the day that he takes me to be with him forever. So I don't need to worry. I don't need to be anxious and bite my nails every, all the time about not feeling completely secure. My security comes from God. And when we live that out, people notice. When they see that, man, he doesn't really have all the backing that I do, and I'm still nervous, and he's calm. What's that about? Why are you so calm? Well, let me tell you. I have a hope, and it's in something greater than money. We can give the reason for the hope we have. That we don't hope in our money. It's not in where, it's not where I put my trust. My hope and my trust is in the Lord, because He will always provide. 
he's always faithful and I believe what he tells me. Another one is when we have peace in suffering. This is a harder one. As James puts it, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. We know that things aren't always going to go as we'd hope, and we're going to have moments where we struggle, where we have suffering. And it doesn't mean that we're going to have a fake smile and, you know, be a little bit extra chipper even though things are going horrible. But there's a peace that comes when we truly get the bigger picture, that we belong to the Lord. And so even in the midst of my suffering, even when I feel crushed and overweighted by everything happening in my life, I can say, I can come to a point where I don't have to break down. I can say, God, you're bigger than this. My hope is in you. My hope isn't in that vacation from all of my problems. My hope is in you. And you said, if I come to you with, when I'm weary and heavy laden, when I'm burdened, when I feel like there's no way I could take another ounce of weight on my shoulders, I come to you and you give me rest. And I think the world sees this. Man, he's struggling. Man, he's, he's dealing with a loss of a loved one. He's dealing with, with this or that. And, and yet he has a peace about him. Maybe that doesn't mean you're not sad. It doesn't mean you're not hurting. It doesn't mean you're not in pain. I mean, it doesn't mean you don't feel overwhelmed. But there's a deeper peace that says, I, I can feel a calm in the midst of this storm because I am not alone. I will not fear even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death because my God is with me. He guides me and his staff, it comforts me. I will not be afraid and I can have peace. And so when people look and see that peace on our face in the midst of sorrow and trouble and hurt, they can say, what is that? How can you, how can you be so calm? How can you have peace? Let me tell you, I have hope. I have hope in Christ. And they might, and most of the time, not get it. And they'll ridicule us. They'll think we're crazy. But I believe that when we continue in that lifestyle, day after day, it begins to affect the way that people perceive these truths. And on that day when they do receive that truth, when God makes sense to them, they will give Him glory. And they will look at your life and glorify God by what they've seen of him in you. So don't blend into the world. Don't just do what the norm is. Don't just follow what everyone else is doing around you, even to the point of ridicule. We want to glorify God through our actions in this life, but also our hope is that others would see, would see the hope we have in the way we live. And at some point, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but at some point, they would also glorify God. And we also see this in the last part of the text in how we interact with authority. In verse 13 and 14, we see this, submit yourselves, why? For the Lord's sake. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. 
to the emperor, president, chancellor, whatever it might be, to the governors, which also would tie in with judges, with the police, who are sent by him, so sent by the, the authority, and I think you could also say set, or set by the laws of the land, to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Now first, it's unto the Lord. It's for His sake. It's unto Him that we do this because He is our authority. He is our ultimate and only authority. So it is for His sake that I do these things. And also is a reminder that we are not to rebel against the system as Christians as we sometimes feel we want to. It's not God's will. And the second is that our goal is, again, the main application here. That God is glorified in us and through our actions in the eyes of the world, and they look to see how, how we treat, how we interact with the authority. In verse 15 for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. That we would live in such a way that they're left speechless. What can they say against those who do right, who follow the law for the Lord's sake, who live rightly for the Lord's sake? So, yes, son, we need to obey the law. We're set apart not merely by avoiding doing wrong, though, when it comes to the law. I think we can also tie this in with our community as a whole. It's not just in not doing what's wrong. Anybody can obey the law, but it's also in seeking to do good. Live such good lives, is what he said earlier. So it's not just in what we don't do, but also in what we do do with our time. So yes, don't steal, don't murder, no speeding. That one's maybe I need to repent. How can we go above that? How can we seek to not just obey the laws, but help those in How can we do more in our community? What can we get, be getting started? That we would be a church that makes the world around us scratch their heads and, and really wonder, why, why are they so invested? Where is their security? What is it says respect our as an example of ways that we need to live differently is to respect our fellow man. Verse 17 closes with, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now this, I believe, is kind of just the general respect that we need to have for everyone. Everybody. 
it's ultimately, of course, for His glory that we do this, but also so that the world around us would see that we're not, we don't come up from a place of we're better than you. We don't come from a, an arrogance. We come from a soft heart, a loving heart, a genuine heart, an authenticity in the way that we interact with people and a respect for everybody we come in contact with. everybody. That means also that guy that cut you off in traffic. Or that work colleague that you just cannot stand to be around very long. Or that family member. We're coming into the holidays. And we all have maybe a family member that we can help out a little bit. That crazy uncle or whatever it might be. But it also means that we need to have come to a point where they say, man, I treat, I treat them really bad, and yet they're always kind to, to me. They're always kind back. What's that about? Maybe it even leads to a discussion. Maybe, maybe you'll never know what, what effect that has on them, but respect everyone. Love that crazy uncle. Maybe you can do a favor for him. What about the merger? It's a way of, of bringing people respect, even those who do evil. The law is meant to uphold the righteous, to punish the wicked, or as he puts it, to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. That is, when it is done as God intended it to be done. There is certainly corruption in the law, in the way these things actually unfold. There are certainly laws not that we're merely honoring the ways of the land, but actually honoring God's intention. 
even though it's not done always right, even though it's not always done as it should be done, we still want to honor, honor the institution 